0: Genesis chapter 1, for those of you who haven't uh, perhaps met me, I don't know if, I don't know if everybody in here met me yet or not, uh, some people I meet lots of times, so try to be patient with me as I meet you for uh, the 14th time and remember, try to remember your name and the things you love and that matter to you. I am Jadon Poindexter. My wife, Deborah, is somewhere, right back here in a green shirt. Uh, and I am beginning the ministry here uh, pulpit ministry to teach and encourage God's people. And so uh, I appreciate your prayers. appreciate your heart, appreciate you listening. So, this morning I want to take off where uh, we talked a little Wednesday night about how we study scripture. How we study scripture is really important. There's the best things in life that you labor for, uh, you labor specifically with intent. You don't raise children by accident. If you, if you raise them and you pour your life into them and you train them and you long for them and you search for them and you guide them and you help them and you you instruct them and you discipline all that, that's not accident. That's all choice that you made, choice after choice after choice. Uh, you don't have a marriage that brings glory to God and blesses everyone who is in contact with it by accident. Takes a lot of work. We got to work specifically. So Solomon said, uh, much study wearies the body. He is right. Study's hard work. So what is our objective as we're looking at Scripture? We keep that always before us. What is our objective? As we read Genesis chapter 1, 1, We'll read a little bit. We talked some about last Sunday. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth, the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And He separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and He called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So we read that information. What are we looking for in now? Here's something I think that will help us in Scripture. It's God's promises. Come over here with me to First Chronicles, chapter 28. Some of David's final instruction to Solomon, his son, who's going to take over as king, who's going to be the protector of God's people, who's going to influence the nation, We'll start in verse eight there. First Chronicles twenty-eight and verse eight. I say it's it's toward the end of David's life, so that you know when when David says this, this is not matter of fact. This is this is very important. He said, "So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God that." You may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. That encapsulated the entire covenant God made with Israel through Moses. That would sum up the whole thing right there. If you do that, it would set you up for that. And then he says this in verse 9, which is my point this morning. And you, my son Solomon... Acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and he understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And so in principle, what you've got here is, is the man who was after God's own, own heart, and that tells us a lot about David. It also tells us something about God, that God raised him up and nurtured him to be about God and to be the man of God that he was. But he's passing this on to Solomon, and he said, here's the key thing, Solomon. You need to seek God. Now, if you seek him, you're going to find him. And if you have God, your reign and your rule will reflect that. God's people will be blessed by that. David understood that. He understood what it was to fall short. He understood what it was to reject God for selfishness and and some occasions. He also understood what it was like to pursue God, to trust God, and to go forward remembering what God had done in the past. David knew all that. And he knew the greatest blessing he ever was to God's people, the greatest protector that he ever was for God's people, the greatest advance, advancer, if you will, that he ever was for God's people is when he was seeking God in his And so you've got this, this moment here in Israelite history that's about the future. Now, where are you going to go and what are you going to do? Here's what you got to do. You got to seek God. Come over here with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29. God's people are in bondage, it's their fault. Uh, They rejected the Lord, they followed their own lust. They lived like the world and loved like the world. I'm going to submit this to you based on what David told Solomon. Uh, they were seeking what the world was seeking power, politics prestige all those things well God told them if you're going to live like the world I'm going to treat you like the world so they did God warned them They wind up in captivity. They're in Babylon. God sent Babylon, by the way. He sent Assyria to to overthrow Israel. And Assyria just overthrew everything they wanted to. And God said, the prophet Isaiah records for us, uh, Assyria, they are the rod of my hot anger. God's back. God's behind that He sets up kings and deposes them He changes times and seasons He gives wisdom to the wise And knowledge to the discerning Daniel would say in this captivity That's true Well Daniel would record that for us He didn't say that but he would record it for us But in this God who's working in these nations to overthrow other nations and has been working through Israel to overthrow other nations, that's how the promised land came about. But now it's come down to Israel rejected God and sought their self, and so God used Assyria to overthrow them. And now Judah, lo and behold, has followed the same pattern, and God's now overthrown them, and he's used Babylon to do it. And so in the midst of this captivity, there's false prophets who are saying, well, we're about to go home. We're about to go home. God's about to restore us. And Jeremiah said, no, God didn't say no such a thing. What God said is, you got to settle down here and you're going to have to seek me in the midst of, in this context, in this horrible, in this horrible context. I mean, Babylon came and elephants stomped them, and they drug them off. They deported people three separate times. You could see this coming for a long way off because God was warning through the prophets. You could see it in the midst of it happening from a long way off because it happened at a little time until they finally it all fell through. It's a horrible time. It's not a good time. It's not a good time to invest. It's a good time to try to survive. But even in the midst of this, and why is this important? Because you and I may find ourselves in a similar situation, emotionally, physically, spiritually. I don't know. I guarantee you we're surrounded by people. And people have this idea about God that that when you're serving God and you're going God's way and you're doing God's things, then God's for you. And the minute you make a mistake and the minute you see yourself backsliding and the minute you find yourself in this deplorable position or, or context that you created by your own rejection of God's goodness and your own implementation of your own ideas, well, God's had about enough of that, and he's done with you. Now, I've sat and have long conversations. I'm talking about with Christians. And they said, I think God's had about enough of my foolishness. He's done with me. I said, well, I'm sorry you misunderstand God. God's not done with you. Want to know the truth about God? God is patient with you. I think that's Second Peter chapter 3. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. So when people find themselves stuck in this ditch, when they find themselves in bondage to some sin or some, I realize this is a foreign nation and this is, this is political. This is very much spiritual also. It was written here for our learning. And in the midst of this, here's what Jeremiah says. I mean, this is crazy. We'll start in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, and if you have trouble rectifying that, you go 609 B.C. to 539 B.C., you get 70 years. We'll do that later sometime. But when the full 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. This place where I cause my name to dwell. This place, as we talked about last Sunday, where the altar will be. This place that I will come to you and I will bless you. I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. The plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then, then you will call upon me and you will come to me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Don't think for a second Babylon usurped uh, usurped God's sovereign authority, came in the middle of the night, snuck off with God's people. God said they're coming. He said, I've raised up a very people for that purpose. They are an impetuous and unstoppable people. You can't count them, you can't stop them, and here they come. But in the midst of that, when things seem like it's like it's chaos and confusion, when things seem like they're absolutely, utterly hopeless, God makes a promise. God makes a promise about what He wants for his people and what he's going to do for his people. Now, if we only read Scripture, if we only read Scripture from the premise of God has told us stuff to do and we're supposed to do it, well, God told them explicitly what to do and they didn't do it. That's what happened, not something else. And in the midst of that chaos and confusion in the midst of that darkness. They're not in in captivity to Babylon because they've been living in the light, because they've been walking in the light. They hadn't done that. They've been bald-faced rejecting God for whatever was offered them on the internet. And God still said, So when there's great potential and you're about to become the leader of God's people and sit on God's throne for God, when you're about to do that, God's going to tell you to seek me so that you'll find me. When you just had your worst about 14 decades here and and. Life in the toilet and face in the toilet and you can't see anything, you can't touch or taste or smell or see anything that would give you any hope, God said, you need to seek me so he can find me because I keep my promises. So i just say those verses, and we could read Matthew 7, we could read Acts 17, we could read over and over in New Testament authority, what God say, if you seek me, Jesus said this, ask, seek, knock, it's that simple. The reign and the rule of Jesus Christ in your life, the power of Jesus Christ to redeem your soul, to redeem your body when he gets back, and to, to put you in God's Precious presence in heaven. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. It's that simple. Ask, seek, knock. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock. And the door will be open. No, that's it. So as we read the text, what are we asking for? I'm not accusing us, I'm asking us. What are we asking for? You could say in some regard, I study this book for a living. Well, I study it like it was my living. Because it is my life when he made a covenant that didn't even reveal justification by faith, when he made a covenant that didn't even, didn't even explain the extension of God's righteousness to his people, when he made a covenant that was just a shadow, when he made a covenant that was just a figure, when he made a covenant that, that offered no real confidence or no real hope in the sense that we have it, When he made that former covenant with the people in Deuteronomy, he said, don't you ever read this law? Don't you ever read the words of this covenant? And like Isaiah said, let it just become rule on rule, do a little of this, do a little of that, don't do some of this. He said, don't you ever read it and let it become that. The words of this covenant, they are your life. They are your avenue to life. If you take a sinner and you give him, the definition of a sinner is somebody that breaks God's law. So you take a sinner and you give him God's law, where's the life going to come from? It's not happening. All you've got so now he knows how dead he is. That's what law explains to you in principle, what's wrong and how wrong it is. It doesn't impart life. It doesn't justify. But somewhere, God's got the capacity to promise these people, let me tell you, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you a future. You're going to seek me and you're going to find me. And David would tell Solomon, keep seeking God, keep seeking God. If you don't, you're going to pay the price for it. Jesus would tell us, ask and seek and knock. And God's promise throughout all of Scripture has been, if you seek me, you will find me. So as we're reading Scripture, who are we seeking? God. So when I read Genesis chapter 1, what am I finding out about God? God. There's power. Plenty of power there, isn't there? in there. Hebrews 11, uh, somewhere in there, three or four or so. And by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. We learn something about the power of God's word, don't we? God is power. He has power. His word is powerful. We learn that. What else we learn about God? Yes, sir. The historical beginning of our creation. All creation begins right there. Where did it come from? God. His voice is coming. He's the source, isn't he? He's the source. When he's the source, sometimes for, for some period of time here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now indicates he's talking about some time. So right then, right now, right then, what was the earth? Formless is just a big pile of, of it's just formless. It's just stuff and things. So since it was formless, necessarily what else was it? Yeah. Empty. Empty of what? Purpose, function, glory to God, any real value, actually. Huh. Life. 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 And so God said, Well, that's good. No, God didn't say that's good. He didn't say that was good. The Spirit of God couldn't stand for that, and he's just brooding, the King James says, like Mother hen what he no, he just mm-mm, mm-mm. No, 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 no. We've got to get some form here so we can have some purpose, so we can have some function, so we can have life. So what do you know that God's about from Genesis chapter 1? What's he about? Creating what? Life. Life. God is about giving what? Life. Live. Now, two things have happened here. This actually happened in Genesis chapter 1, and Moses actually recorded it. I don't know if Abraham heard campfire stories about it. I don't know if Noah had lots of good stories that he heard from his parents and grandparents, and I don't know if Methuselah remembered anything. I don't know. But when God wrote it down, when he recorded this, in Genesis. What was going on? What was going on? What had God just finished doing? His children were in, were in bitter, oppressive bondage to the greatest power on the earth at that time, the greatest organized political power on the planet, Egypt. They ran everything. It's all the water and the irrigation and all the awesome stuff. I mean, you know, they just got it. He just finished freeing his people from that, this little family that he, that he, by his providence, I mean, if you'd skip ahead there and get to chapter 12 and go all the way to about chapter 50 of Genesis, you get this family of this, this story of this family And they go into Egypt and things fall apart eventually. And so when the oppression gets bad enough and God hears their cries, Exodus chapter three, and here we go, Moses, we're going to go get them. And God's going to rescue them and redeem them from a formless, empty way of life. They're existing in Egypt as slaves, but that's not productive. That's not effective. That's not freedom. That's not... Life They're breathing in and out But that's not life Right Sometimes when God says life He ain't talking about just breathing in and out Right Jesus said everybody else that comes Is a, is a thief and a robber John ten ten. But I have come that they might have Life Just a little bit No Life abundantly and have it to the full. Being slaves to Egypt is not abundant life. And I realize in, in principle, that doesn't in, pre, in specific, that doesn't come until God offers in Jesus what He's offering. But God's still the same God, and He still wants the same things way back over here in 15th century BC. And so when God is starting a nation, when he's turning a family into a nation, when he is, what do you got to have to have a nation? Just in practical, most simple terms, what do you got to have? Or land. You got to have people. You got to have some place to put them. What else you got to have? People, land. Government. Got to have some form of government. I mean, people can't just hang out. Does this sound like formless and empty? No, it's getting real specific, isn't it? So you got land, you got people, you got government. Treasury. Treasury. Sorry, I don't have my hearing aids, you know. So you got to have some money. Well, these guys are slaves, they don't have any money. How's a bunch of slaves going to have money? Oh, wait, no, I tell you what, since Egypt is going to be obstinate in the release of, of Israel, like God told them, let my people go, you know, in the 10 miracles, which what they are, and God said, okay, tell you what, you don't want to let them go? We'll just see who's God here. You will beg them to go, and you go here. Before you leave, would you please take all of my gold and silver? And so they left Egypt as if they had plundered it. You couldn't have come into Egypt with an army and left with more stuff than Israel left with. Does God know what he's doing? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why does he choose that moment? Why did he choose that moment to record Genesis 1? Was it not important for Abraham, the father of the nation, Huh. Did y'all hear what Alan said? Because that's a pretty good stab at that, really. Why is it so important when you are about to impact the entire world, the Jews this—they get this wrong idea in their head that God's ambition is them, and yet there's not a Jew one, there's not a single solitary Jew in the first three chapters of Genesis. You don't even find a Jew till you get over to chapter 12. You know why? Because there's not one. We say Jew, you know, Eber, Hebrew, from where we get the, they speak Hebrew. Abraham's first man called a Hebrew. He's the father of the nation Before the father of the nation You don't have the nation What do you got People Who turned out to be what Sinners What's God keep doing Resetting and bringing life I mean Here comes Abel Loving the Lord Here comes Cain killing him Here comes Seth Seeking the Lord You know everybody's gone yonder in a handbasket. all no, there's one guy that hadn't given up. God has him build a boat and save everybody that he wanted to be saved. Why is that important for Israel to have? Well, they have to know the origin of the universe. No, they don't. They got to know God is somebody they can trust. They've got to know the God the God who came into creation. When creation wasn't having its best time and he came into creation and he came and he brought light and he started speaking and life started happening. Now you can't mess with him. It wouldn't do to reject him. If you want life, your best, your best chance would be to seek him. They know that. And they're just barely started in the book. And all the all the issues of life flow out of God's identity. Remember, Pharisees come to Jesus and they're Well, now we got a question. This this uh this lady uh, married and then husband died, and then she married his brother, and then she wound up getting married seven times, seven, and we just She said, you got a lot of questions here. He said, your problem is you never read Genesis chapter one and looked for God. Because if you're not looking for God, then death or remarriage or remarriage and redivorce and remarriage, all that, it doesn't make any difference what you figure out about all that. If you're not looking for God, We keep thinking that God's looking for some spe- certain specific application of law. Well, words have meanings, brothers and sisters, and, and there's applications for commands. But what God's looking for is to give life. No, that's what he wants. God, Paul wrote Timothy by inspiration and said, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. So what are we looking for as we study scripture? The best we'll ever do when we study scripture is when we ask, what is this scripture trying to tell me about God? When the world is hopeless and every inclination of man's heart is only wicked all the time, guess what? God when God's people have had his protection and his provision and and all of this and they have set aside and broken his covenant and they have gone their own way, guess what you've got? God. God. And God is always saying this. Come on. Come on. Genesis chapter 3, when God's calling out to Adam in the garden. Where are you? Is he taking a survey? Is that the first census? Is he looking for some data or information? Or is he headed this way? Adam? What happened, Adam? He's calling man to himself. So we'll take up there next time. Love you. Appreciate your attention.